Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of Agenda 2021 conversations in which we meet with leading experts and discuss what we think the right agenda might be for Joe Biden, when he becomes uh, president in January of 2021, if that is to come to pass, um, uh, and uh, talk about how we tackle the problems we're facing in this country. Clearly, many of the greatest problems we face are uh, economic problems. Unfortunately, today we have with us one of uh, America and the world's leading economists, Nobel Prize winner, Joseph Stiglitz of Columbia University. Hi, Joe. How are you? Nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think the the best place to start would be with a bit of a scene setter. Uh, We've all read projections for the economic consequences of this crisis coming from the IMF, coming from uh, Wall Street firms and so forth. All of them seem to suggest a very, very deep crisis, uh, 30, 40, even 50 million unemployed in the United States, real GDP uh, shrinkage, perhaps down 5% more uh, over the course of 2020, and many of them projecting um, not just a global recession through this year, but a process of recovery that may take many years uh, uh, in the United States will certainly take us through 2021. Before we get into the prescriptive parts of this, what's your outlook? Uh I share the pessimism that's uh, very widespread. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, because we don't know the course of the disease. And here in the United States, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about our politics. Uh, the, the, The Republicans are, at this point, refusing to provide additional support for unemployment insurance that's obviously needed. Uh, for the state and localities. Uh, So there's a lot of uncertainty about economic policy as well. Uh, At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was hope of a V-shaped recovery. You know, you put the economy in the uh, hospital, as it were, for uh, a few weeks. You give it a lot of loving care and a lot lot of money and uh, uh, ten weeks later, it emerges uh, uh, pick up uh, where we left off. I think that uh, very clear it 's not going to be a v shaped recovery uh, it 's going to be a difficult sloth to to recover uh, and uh, uh, how soon and how well we recover will first depend on how well we deal with the pandemic itself, and then uh, on how we deal with uh, our economic policies. 
So let me wa- ask you a follow-up question to that before we get into this this more prescriptive question. Uh, there there have been some interventions by the U.S. government, uh, but uh, most of the big programs run out at the end of July. Looks right now like this uh, 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 COVID crisis uh, is ramping up. It looks like it's going to remain deep throughout the course of the summer. A number of U.S. states and cities look like they may actually run out of money uh, for essential services um, as we get towards the end of this. And it also looks like the United States Congress has no appetite for another round of, of intervention. Uh, does that worry you as well? And do you think we could see uh, not a second wave of the crisis, but a, a, a second dip of the economic crisis as a consequence? Oh, uh, very much so. Um, you know, even earlier on, I was worried about the lack of support to state and local governments. You know, uh, they're on the front line in dealing with the COVID-19 and providing health care, and their revenues have been plummeting. Uh, in the 2008 crisis, their revenues fell twice the base of GDP. And the stakes have balanced budget uh, frameworks, which means when revenues go down, they have to cut back on expenditures. It was interesting in the last jobs report, one of the big areas of job loss was government employees, which is particularly uh, government employees at the state level. So. Uh, we've calculated that just this alone will uh, present a major impediment to a strong recovery. So uh, it really worries me a great deal that we are not providing uh, support for our state and local governments. And of course, with uh, so many people being put at the edge, uh, so many people vulnerable, and these depending on services from the local and state governments uh, is going to uh, make their plight even worse. So this has many dimensions. And as a new president comes in, should that be the, what, what, what happens, um, they're going to face a lot of problems. It seems that the largest problem socially and economically is, is going to be tens of millions of people who are unemployed. Uh, and that is going to be the one that's going to cry out for some kind of a solution. What you know? What is the the the, the right solution? What is the right mix of solutions there? I noticed, uh, and I encourage other people to look at this. You did a uh, were a co-author of a paper called "Will COVID nineteen fiscal recovery packages accelerate or retard progress on climate change?" And although that was a very climate change oriented report. When you look at the top proposals, um, they center on infrastructure building, uh, they center on R&D, and they center on education. Do you think, you know, I can extrapolate from that proposal more broadly, that investing in infrastructure, whether it's green infrastructure, or connectivity infrastructure, next generation infrastructure, is one of the quickest paths towards jobs in this case? What are the other big job creators that a president can 
introduce and actually produce results in a relatively short period of time? Well, one of the main uh, uh, objectives of any restructuring, we, we talked about the vision at the beginning of in a short span of time, going back to where we were. Well, where we were was not a very good place. We don't want to go back to where we were. Uh, we want to go to where we want to be. Uh, before the crisis, we had a lot of inequality, and, and uh, both economic, racial inequality. Uh, and the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has exposed that even more. Uh, we had a climate crisis before. Uh, we've not done anything about it, and, and uh, it's still with us. We had a health crisis before. Life expectancy in the United States remarkable for an advanced country with our income was on the lowest among the advanced countries. So again, we had a problem before and COVID-19 has exposed uh, the problem. So to me, one of the, the key point as we think about what to do is how can we simultaneously recover employment and address these uh, existing problems, pre-existing problems uh, that we have. And uh, this particular paper that you uh, mentioned, what we emphasized there was that there are a whole set of measures that will help us address uh, the climate crisis. And the same thing goes by the health crisis, inequality crisis that uh, are timely, that is to say we could take action very quickly, labor intensive, which means that they increase the demand for labor and that addresses the unemployment problem in the short run and the inequality problem, Um, that uh, they will uh, uh, have high multipliers, which means that for every dollar spent, we increase GDP a lot. And they're consistent with this kind of vision of uh, what kind of economy uh, we want to go to. So I could go through some of the specific kinds of things, but there's a long list of things that we could do that I think uh, would uh, uh, simultaneously address our present problem as well as our long-term problems. Well, let's let's go through it. I, I, I was interested in the methodology in the report because one of the things you did was you went to a group of experts and you 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 sort of took their temperature and what would produce the best effect in the long run, what would produce the most immediate effect, what would have the most net positive effect. And so, for example, when you when you look at those kind of proposals, you saw that. Um, uh, uh, clean energy infrastructure, connectivity infrastructure, um, uh, R&D spending, and so forth, scored quite well. Um, uh, uh, And I I would assume that there are other forms of traditional infrastructure investment and other kinds of things that might score quite well. And that some of these things have the benefit that the government doesn't have to pay for all of them. Because you can get markets to pay for some of them. You can leverage them up and you don't have to write trillions and trillions of dollars worth of checks. Do you share that view? Oh, very much so. And, and uh, uh, you know, uh, you might say we're lucky right now because we've uh, underinvested in our infrastructure for a quarter century. So we have a lot of gaps to be filled. That means there are very high return investments. Uh, 
the the thing that will that that the next president will have to pay attention to is that some of the things that we need are the kinds of investments that take a long time to plan and construct. Uh, but there are other things that you can do relatively quickly. And we have an emergency here. I mean, there will be a high levels of unemployment. We will have to move people from the sectors that are going to be affected for some time into new sectors. So uh, one of the, the, the real challenges is how to get the highest bang for the buck in the long run and at the same time make sure that we're addressing the immediate problems, which I think are likely to be very severe. Um, what are the other areas that you think ought to, you know, if you're going to say a new president comes in, they can't do a hundred things at once. I remember once talking to a senior cabinet official before I went in in the Clinton administration. He said, look, pick three things. You know, you can't do 20 things. What are the three things? Now, this looks like it's going to require more than that. But if you were advising Joe Biden or if he turned to you and he said, what should be the centerpieces of a recovery proposal. Um, we already talked about infrastructure and jobs. Are there other centerpieces? I mean, in, 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 the, in the study that you did, uh, healthcare spending, R&D spending, loomed large education spending, but that's got a kind of long, slow burn. What, what are the things that, that ought to be priorities early? Well, let me go back. I, I, some of these things, going back to what we said in the beginning about state and, lo- state and local government, if you don't give assistance to the state and local governments, we're going to have cutbacks in both health and education and the support of the uh, people who are in in great need. So the reality is that uh, just preventing things from getting worse is going to require significant government expenditures uh, in support of the state and local governments. They won't be able to do it on their own. So uh, the, the, maintaining the status quo is going to be our first challenge. Uh, obviously, over the long run, I, m- I mentioned before, uh, the problems that we have on both inequality and in the healthcare. care, uh, 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 both of these uh, come together in a way, both of the state and local, but also in, in supporting uh, um, education and, and, and providing broader support for our healthcare sector. Now, let me just give you one example of, of what I was very disturbed about in the CARES Act, which was the act that was passed uh, a few weeks ago uh, to deal with the, with the crisis. The, um, uh, there was no vision about what sectors we ought to be giving a lot of support for. Uh, it was basically a bazooka, a fire hose strategy uh, with no sense of, of prioritization. Now, we're moving to a knowledge economy. And you would have thought that one of the things that as you move to a knowledge economy is that you support our knowledge infrastructure, uh, the basis of our production of knowledge is one of our big comparative advantages in the United States. Uh, 
In fact, uh, very little money went to our research institutions, to our uh, uh, tertiary education sector, to our universities, to our colleges. Uh, and so, and this is a sector that's again being devastated by the pandemic. And so, one of the first priorities is to prevent things from getting worse by providing assistance to this very important uh, sector. So, while we were pouring billions of dollars into the airline, uh, where we should have been supporting our rail infrastructure, uh, as an example, uh, which would have been uh, uh, creating a greener transportation network. Uh, while we should have been uh, thinking about how we connect people with jobs better, particularly low-income people with jobs, and that one of the problems is public transportation systems, that was not on the agenda. The agenda was bailing out the old industries, even when those industries were partially responsible for the predicament that they were in, because they took huge advantage of the tax bill in December of 2017. But rather than making, uh, providing for a cash cushion in case of uh, uh, some necessity, some contingency, they paid it out in dividends and share buybacks. And so they were at least partially responsible for the predicament that they were in. But we didn't pay any attention to that. We just doled out billions and billions of dollars. So again, it, it reflects a lack of priority. And one of the first things I would encourage the new administration to do is to, to have a vision of what kind of economy we want emerging uh, from the pandemic. You know, listening to what you're saying, uh, just to pick up on, on the prior point, because I think it needs underscoring, if you want to invest in infrastructure, most of the infrastructure spending and management comes at the state and local level. If you want to invest in education, same thing as we've seen with COVID, same thing. If you create some big federal programs uh, or you know, plan to write some big federal checks and don't fix the state and local financial problems, you, you can't fix the problem. No, it's, I, I call it austerity from below. Uh, you know, in Europe, we saw the effect of austerity, government cutbacks in the midst of the financial crisis and the euro crisis 2008-2010. And the result of that in countries like Spain and uh, Portugal and Ireland was plummeting income. Uh, the economy went down uh, and it had a devastating effects on their population, on their, on their health and their well-being. Um, we're having, uh, we're trying an experiment on austerity, but I call it austerity from below because while the federal government is spending large amounts of money, the state and local governments are going to be contracting and uh, you won't have a robust uh, recovery like that. You know, if we went back to the Great Depression, uh, one of, that's one of the lessons that we should have learned from the Great Depression. While FDR was uh, expanding federal expenditures with the New Deal, the expansionary effect of the, of those, uh, of the New Deal was at least partially undermined by contraction that was going on at the state level. Well, back when we were 
you know, putting together the New Deal, there, there was a sense in the federal government that we had to spend to solve these problems. Um, uh, as you note, this, uh, that although there's been spending of trillions of dollars in some of these programs, they've been directed at corporate bailouts and not um, at the state, local, or, you know, bottom parts of the population level. As a new government comes in, you know, we've had, you and I have been in the middle of this before in democratic administrations, a bit of a debate about how sensitive you are to the concerns of the market about growing deficit spending versus how, uh, uh, how much you're willing to spend to solve the problem right now. Um, and, I, you know, I think there's a sense this crisis calls for writing some checks, but we can be smart about it. We can create, you know, an infrastructure bank and, and leverage out the spending by tapping into markets where we can. There, there are ways to, uh, you know, uh, get more bang for our buck uh, than, than we have in the past. We haven't been very smart about that. Do you have thoughts about how a new administration ought to be approaching such issues? Well, uh, first, uh, to to reiterate the point uh, you just made, uh, we we have to be willing to undertake uh, more debt. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid. Uh, again, to go back to the Great Depression, one of the reasons that it took so long to recover, we didn't get out of the Great Depression until World War II, remember it began and, and with the stock market crash in 1929, that was a long time. And one of the reasons was that in 1936 and 1937, uh, fears of the deficit grew and even Roosevelt got nervous and pulled back. And as he pulled back, the U.S. went back into uh, a recession. So the sustaining spending uh, is important. We'll, we'll be in a good position because interest rates are going to remain close to zero uh, for uh, a extended period of time. And when you have interest rates as low as that, that means the cost of servicing the debt are very low. In fact, real interest rates are likely to be negative. Uh, that's a particularly good time to make infrastructure investments. You know, if you could borrow at essentially zero or negative real terms and make high return investments, your balance sheet looks better. Your asset side goes up much more than your liability side. So this is actually smart, a, a good time to make uh, these kinds of investments. Now, resources are still scarce. But you want to make so you want to make sure that you make uh, that you spend your your dollars well, and that's part of my complaint about what happened when we had the tax cut in 2017. Uh, we wound up with a trillion dollar deficit, but nothing to show for it. Uh, we didn't have uh, more investment in either the public or the private sector. Um, the final point that you made, I think, is also important. Uh, we have to think about uh, institutional innovation. Uh, how do we help uh, support this kind of investment, uh, smart investment, green investment? 
Uh, and an important institution for doing that are uh, development banks, infrastructure banks, green banks. Uh, New York State has created a, a, a green bank. Um, and around the world, uh, infrastructure banks uh, have played an important role in financing infrastructure. So uh, the point is that uh, these banks realize that there's a real return to these kinds of investments. Before we wrap up, because we try to keep these conversations about 30 minutes, uh, are there areas I haven't covered that as you, you know, you imagine if you're sort of sitting there and you're saying to uh, Vice President Biden as he's planning his transition, start here. Um, that are that are not getting enough conversation right now that you think des- deserve of some conversation, whether it's you know dealing with those people who uh, have lost incomes or, or particularly perhaps dealing with jobs that we lost that are not going to come back. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of that going on right now. We also see, for example, I just saw this morning a projection that forty percent of the minority owned small and medium businesses are likely to close down as a consequence of this. So we are going to create pressure points at specific places within our society, and they may need some emergency intervention. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are here as we, we approach wrapping up. Yeah, well, there, there, are, there are actually a, a number of initiatives that we ought to be thinking about. Um, uh, and many of these address the problems of longstanding uh, economic and racial injustices uh, that have been festering in our country for a very long time. And uh, this is a moment I think that we uh, could and should do something about it. Let me just talk about uh, two or three uh, ideas that we ought to begin to discuss. Um, The first, uh, there's one idea that's getting a lot of attention uh, is uh, reparations, um, that uh, one of the things that I always thought so strange in the debate at the end of slavery, that there was a discussion of compensating the slave owners for their loss of property, but no discussion of compensating the slaves who have the value of their human labor stolen from them and have their lives uh, stolen from them. And we haven't done anything about it for 150 years. Now, the way I think that we ought to deal with that issue is to have a, like something analogous to the GI Bill. The GI Bill, remember, at the end of World War II, we said everybody who had fought in the war, which was basically every young man and a lot of young women who had fought in the war, had as a matter of right, the a right to go to school as long as they were, you know, the best school that they were qualified for as long as they were qualified. And it really transformed the United States from a rural economy into a manufacturing economy, moved us in our development process. It led to this enormous growth after World War II. I think we would unleash the similar kind of energy if we did that, you know, not only for African-Americans, but also for Native Americans, um, for other groups that we have treated uh, unjustly. A second thing, going back to 
the New Deal, one of the things that was uh, very uh, at the core of, of, of that were government job programs. They were very su- successful. Uh, the parks that we enjoy today, many of them were built in, uh, uh, at that time uh, by the government. Uh, some of the major uh, water control, electricity, TVA, were all government projects that addressed American needs uh, as part of that uh, uh, dealing with the, uh, uh, the Great Depression. Uh, so if the market can't guarantee a job for everybody who is able and willing to work, the government needs to step in. And this fits in with the infrastructure that we've been talking about and the other needs that we're talking about, you know, creating uh, more livable cities. Uh, we can use productively that labor to help meet some of our real national, uh, re- real national needs. Um, the third thing is we, we need to recognize that the private financial markets tend to be short-sighted. Uh, they tend not to view things from a broader uh, social perspective. And uh, we succeeded in getting more finance to uh, minority communities through the CRA, our Community Reinvestment Act. But it's very clear, given the fragility of many of the minority-owned uh, enterprises, that we're going to need more support. And uh, I think we, we will need to uh, keep that in mind. But that's related to the other point I made about development banks, uh, infrastructure banks. For the most part, financial markets have a short time, short-term horizon. And as a country, we ought to be thinking long-term. We ought to think about long-term problems like inequality, healthcare, education, climate. And uh, one of the real functions of, a, of, a, of these kinds of development banks, infrastructure banks, is that it would bring into finance that kind of long-term perspective uh, that has been so lacking uh, in, in, in the markets as we've seen in, in uh, 2008 and we keep seeing. Well, thank you for that, Joe, and thank you for taking the time with us. Um, what we're trying to do here in these series of Agenda 2021 conversations is speak to leading thinkers, leading policy thinkers about the challenges that we face as a country. And those of you who've been listening know that we've had conversations on foreign policy issues, domestic policy issues, economic issues. We're going to continue to do that uh, through the election. And we're also going to continue in the fall to create uh, some live and virtual events where uh, our audience can get involved and interact with experts like Joe uh, as we shape this 
Agenda 2021. And one of the reasons we're doing that is we are at an extraordinary moment, not only of crisis for the United States with this dual crisis of COVID and the economic crisis, the social consequences that produce, but also a moment of transition. There's a lot of change that needs to come in our economy, whether it's in dealing with past problems, as Joe indicated, uh, such as inequality, um, or it's dealing with simply the transformation of the economy into an information economy, into an economy that can compete in the era uh, ahead of us, not just one tooled for the era behind us. That requires big thinking. I'm so glad that that we've had Joe here because he's one of the clearest big thinkers I know. His ideas here are ideas that would benefit um, us all, and I hope you will go and continue to follow Joe, uh, read his books, read uh, the articles that he is putting out as we get closer and closer to this election. We need our best brains on it. Joe is definitely one of our very best brains and one of our most thoughtful uh, analysts. So thank you, Joe, very much for thank you. joining us. And uh, for more information about the uh, Agenda 2021 series and some of the things we've got coming up, go to the dsrnetwork.com where all these uh, 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 podcasts are, are, are listed and where the upcoming events will also be listed and you can get tickets and you can attend them. We're very proud that the audience for these is growing and growing. Last week was the biggest week we've ever had. Uh, and we hope that you'll keep it going. Certainly uh, listening to discussions like this one explains why that's happening. Thank you very much, everybody, and uh, stay safe and healthy out there.